in the 35 minutes or so that we have left in our service, I want you to focus your attention upon Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. Now, this is a very, very familiar passage to many of us because it contains the account of Jesus' evangelistic strategy of the rich young ruler. And I want you to listen carefully as I read God's Word. The Scripture says, As he, that is Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus had a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now as I have done on a couple of different occasions as we've studied through the Gospel of Mark, I hesitate to simply go through an exposition of this passage because there are some things that we need to know and understand before we ever approach this text. And one of those is this. As you read that passage, and I'm, I'm sure as you've read it many times before, if you're like me, you have been provoked by it. You've been challenged by it, and in some ways you've been puzzled by it. You say, how so? Well, for one, if you were to have gone to Jesus like this man, the rich young ruler, and if you were to have asked the question of him or some other Bible teacher or some other professing Christian, and you were to have said, what must I do to inherit eternal life, what answer might you have received? I propose to you that the answer that Jesus gave is very strange. For if you had asked me that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, I might say to you, just like you as an evangelical would say to me, believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. Entrust yourself to Christ as your only Savior. If you would want to inherit eternal life, you would need to give your life to Christ such as, such as it is, but give your life to Him. 
Entrust your whole soul to the person of Christ. He's the only one that God has given to be the Savior of the world. Confess your sins and repent of them and place your faith in Christ. That would be the evangelical response, wouldn't it? And yet that is not the response of Jesus here in this passage. What does he say? Well, the rich young ruler, as we call him, rich because Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel, as we combine them all together, say that he was a rich and young ruler. He came to Christ, came to this Bible teacher, this rabbi, this would-be Messiah, at least in terms of how the Jews thought he was communicating himself to be, and he asked a very legitimate question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do? And instead of giving what we said was the evangelical line, uh, instead of giving the gospel proclamation of believing in Christ and trusting yourself to Him, Jesus, in fact, says something very differently. What does He say? He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. To which this man said, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And then if you were to presume that Jesus was the right kind of evangelist, you would assume that he would say, Well then, you ought to understand that there's more to this, you see. And he does so. But what he says next is, truly amazing. What he says is, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Now that I submit to you is a very strange response to the question of eternal life. Do you mean to say, Jesus, that if I were to give up all that I possess, if I were to give up my material possessions, that in doing so, I would actually inherit eternal life? I thought that the gospel was repenting and believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. What is this about giving your money away? I don't believe that salvation is by works of any kind. There's no merit that anyone could ever do in order to inherit eternal life. And yet, for some strange reason, as though it seems to us, Jesus is saying that's the very thing you must do to inherit eternal life. Is Jesus here proposing a gospel of salvation by works? Keeping commandments? If this rich young ruler were, were to have said, as he did, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And if he in fact did then go and sell his possessions, maybe like Zacchaeus, maybe even giving four times as much to those that he defrauded, do you think at that moment Jesus would have conferred upon him eternal life? My friends, there is something here in this passage that needs to be understood. Because we do have people who are self-proclaimers and purveyors of a gospel message that do in fact say, give up your money and give it to the poor. Keep the commands of God and you shall inherit eternal life. There's something here. There's something here that we must understand. What is this evangelistic strategy that Jesus is giving us here? Is this the way we ought to respond to someone who comes to us? 
Well, you see, before we can ever go through this passage verse by verse, we need to understand something. Jesus' evangelistic strategy, his message and his method in this text is showing us how to preach the law to someone who has unmitigated and unbridled pride. That's what Jesus is doing. Now, Jesus doesn't always respond to people who come to him in this way, but this man he does. You remember the woman at the well? He says nothing of this to her. You remember the woman caught in adultery? He says nothing like this to her. But apparently with this rich young ruler and whatever it was that was in his heart, Jesus knowing the heart of all men, he knows that the right kind of evangelistic strategy for a man like this, a wealthy man, a rich man, Jesus' perspective on the rich has to be somehow tied to the issue of pride. And that is exactly what he's driving at. What he's doing here, beloved, is he's showing a person who has pride in his heart based upon his riches that if you believe that you are self-sufficient, that you have what you need to have with your money, and if given the ultimate choice of parting with the cash and aligning yourself with Christ, you would take the cash. That's the heart of the matter. You say, well, tell me more. I'm provoked. All right. When Jesus speaks here, there is a man who comes to him with what appears to be a very honest and a, a very necessary question. He's young and rich and apparently has some status in the community. We don't know if he is a leader of a synagogue. He may very well be. Or it just may be that this man has developed some wealth somehow. Uh, maybe when Jesus says, do not defraud, as one of the commandments that are given, Maybe he was, in fact, involved in such a practice, and that is how he gained some of his wealth. We don't know. We do know this. On the surface, he simply is coming to this master teacher, this master rabbi, and he's asking an honest question, or at least it appears to us he is. How, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus preaches not the gospel, not what I said before was the evangelical proclamation of the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's not what he preaches to this man. What he preaches to this, to this man is the law. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, it's like this. If a person has pride, if a person has arrogance, if a person has such a a number of riches, whether it's uh, material or even his own mind, his mental accomplishments, uh, or his... Uh, a family accomplishes or lineage or whatever it may be, but the person is filled with pride, Jesus wants to know if that person is willing to part with their pride for the sake of enduring the cross. And so what he does is he poses a question. And he poses it in the matter of a statement. You know the commandments, i.e., have you done them? And we know that pride is the response because what does he say? Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Is that what you would say? Is that what I would say? Well, I answer to you, if you know anything about me, certainly not. How could anyone, how could any human being 
give a response that says, in question of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, I have kept them, teacher, from my youth up. I'm okay in that arena. And Jesus knows that at that particular point, the issue with this rich young ruler is his rich young ruling, his pride. How can anyone legitimately say that they have kept the commandments of God, kept the law of God? And it's not just the Decalogue we're talking about. There are other laws that God has commanded. There are other things that the Jews were asked to obey. And apparently all of these things in the mind of this man, from his youth up, he had kept and kept with fastidiousness. And with a man like that, as opposed to maybe the woman at the well or the woman caught in adultery, as opposed to those ladies, this man says, I have it all and I've done it all. And so Jesus gives him a different kind of evangelistic response than he would anybody else. He says, I want you to know something. What you lack is this. Humility, brokenness, dependence. You lack a childlike faith as I just described about these little children. You lack the one thing that is necessary to enter in into eternal life. And that is a brokenness, a spiritual bankruptcy, a mourning over your sin, a desire to say, I am nothing and I have nothing. Even if you were rich, even if you had all of the money that you could possibly have, the person who gains entrance into the kingdom of God is the one who says, even though I have all that the world could give, in and of myself I am nothing. That's, as the old saying goes, no man is so poor as the one who has only money. If you, as a rich young ruler, or we might say as a rich young entrepreneur, or a rich young yuppie, whatever the case is, if Jesus were to come to us, or more importantly, if we were to go to Him and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer cannot be, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Folks, that's the wrong answer. That's the opposite answer than the right answer. And the right answer is, even though I may own much, I am nothing and I have nothing. And I cannot save myself. And when Jesus pinpoints the very key heart issue, He says, by the way, if you think you've kept all the commands as you say you have from your youth up, I want you to go out, I want you to take all that you possess, I want you to give it away, and I want you to come and follow me. And what does the Bible say? Verse 22. But at these words, he was what? Saddened. Sorrowing. Downtrodden. Downcast. Discouraged despondent. Why? Why? Because at the very crucible of the moment of choice, he was unwilling to part with his riches. He was saddened and went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. That's his attitude. 
And if you were to contrast that with the attitude of Christ, it says he had a love for him. Doesn't that amaze us? When we shake our fist in the face of a holy God, and when at the moment of choice we have the opportunity to inherit eternal life to be conferred on us at that moment for everlasting. And with the love of Christ being shed abroad in our hearts at that very moment in time, the very moment of the entrance into the kingdom of God, my choice is I love my money. I love my stuff. And I want that more than I want anything else. Jesus is preaching the law. You say, well, what, what does it mean to preach the law? It means that when you tell somebody about what the law's demand is, total and utter perfection, that you can't ever break any law at all that God has given, and that if you break it at one point, the Bible says in the book of James, you are guilty of what? All. You're guilty of all the law if you break it at one point, and the law comes in and it crushes us. It hammers us with the reality that inside our hearts are nothing but pride-filled hearts. You say, is that what the law does? I, I thought the law was, was something else. I thought the law was what I needed to do in response to my gratitude for having been saved. Well, yes, that's true. The Bible speaks of the law being observed in that way and that I'm so grateful to God that He's given me this salvation that I want to obey Him. And there are New Testament principles and injunctions that I obey. There are New Testament prohibitions that I stay away from. That's true. But the main use of the law, the law is given to me and to every single person who's ever lived as a tutor to drive me to Christ. It's given to me to show me not how good I am, but it shows me, the law does, how bad I am. And you see, no one, as I've said before, is ever going to understand or appreciate or affirm the good news until we affirm how bad the bad news is. And what is the badness of the bad news? I'll tell you exactly what it is. The badness of the bad news is that when the law comes to me, it slays me. It crushes me. It tells me, here's the standard, here's the measuring rod, here's the, here's the standard to reach, and I am immediately seeing and hearing and understanding that that law is so high, so far-reaching, so above me, that I could never in my own person ever hope to fulfill the law that God has commanded me to live. And you know what God says about that? At the very moment I come to that realization, he says this, that's exactly the point. The point is the realization in your human heart that you and that I could never attain to that standard. And you see, that's precisely where Jesus wanted the rich young ruler to come to. That he realized, you mean to say that I have to keep these commandments? You mean to tell me that I have to give all that I possess to the poor in order to inherit eternal life? I can't do it. How much money can I give? Is it 10,000? Is it 10 million? Is it 100 million? How many commands must I obey? All 10 of them? All of the law? All of the injunctions? All of the prohibitions? Everything? And that if I disobey in one part, I'm out? The standard has been crushed? That's it? Yes. Yes. 
That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who realize that in and of themselves they are unable to keep the law of God. You say, oh, that's bad. No, 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 that's good. That's good. Because it shows us that in and of ourselves we could never do it. And that the only one who has done it is Jesus himself. You see, it's not just the fact of Jesus' death on the cross that saves me. It's also the very fact of the righteous life that he lived, perfectly fulfilling all of the demands of all of the law up to its very apex of the level. And when he does so, I entrust myself to him. The just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. And when God gives me the opportunity to see those spiritually blind eyes open and I realize that all the stuff that I've been pursuing, all of the work and all of the merit and all of the stuff that I had been doing in my life that I realized were actually condemning me, that's when I come to the realization that Jesus Christ is my only hope. You say, well, does the... Does the Bible really talk about the law in that way? Does the Bible really pursue me as to the law and what it does to crush me? Yes, I want you to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. This is, this is so very important for you to, to gain an understanding on because, my friends, this is the very essence of what the law does. It brings me to the gospel. The law slays me, the law kills me, and it shows me who I am. And as soon as I see the deadness of my condition, then the gospel comes to me in refreshing odor. Oh, the gospel when it comes to me and it sweeps me up under its feet and it shows me that while the law killed me, the gospel gives me life. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? I mean, if you're talking about the law, Lance, in the way that you are, and if you're telling me the law crushes me and kills me and slay me, then I don't want the law. The law is not a good thing. Paul says, on the contrary, the law is not contrary to the promises of God. May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. In other words, if this law could give you life, if it was a replacement for faith, then you wouldn't need faith. All you'd have to do is obey and fulfill the law and that that would be your impartation of life. That's how you could fulfill your life as righteous and that's how you could merit eternal life. If that were so, then the law would not be good. But the law is not contrary to that. The law wasn't given for that. The scripture, verse 22 says, has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law brings me to a place of recognition of my sinfulness, of my spiritual condition, and then the gospel takes me up. The law slays me and the gospel gives me life. He says, before faith came, verse 23, we were kept in custody under the law. Do you see it there? That's what the law does. It keeps me in prison. It keeps reminding me over and over and over again of the standard. And the standard tells me how bad I am, how low I've met the bar. That's what the law does. It keeps me under custody. 
it keeps me being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. And what was that? When Jesus Christ himself died on the cross. And so what does the law do? Paul says very clearly in the next verse, therefore, verse 24, the law has become our what? Our tutor. I like this translation. The law drives us to Christ. Isn't that how it was with you? It's the way it was with me. I was so burdened under the law. It's like John Bunyan's Christian and Pilgrim's Progress. I had this burden of sin on my back and I couldn't relieve it no matter what I did. And the more I tried to do righteousness, the more unrighteous I realized I was. The more I tried to do the good things, the more I realized how bad the good was that I was doing. And if that's not frustrating, is that frustrating for you? Boy, that's so frustrating for me. I mean, you're running on the treadmill. And you're running. And the more you pick up the pace, the farther behind you are. Well, that's a dilemma. That's a dilemma that cannot be answered by human beings because it is not by the will of man. It is not by the will of the flesh. It is not by anything, by blood, by religion, by denominations, by anything other than the perfect law fulfillment, and that is Jesus Christ. And Paul says, the law, it keeps you in prison. But the gospel, Christ's righteousness sets you free. That's why the only hope for you and for me is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, but that's what it says there in Galatians 3, and it talks about the law, of course, and it says that it keeps me in bondage. But I, I don't think I'm really convinced that man is as bad as you preachers say that they are. I mean, if you listen to radio and television, and if you were even to hear of reports about ShareFest 99, about all of the good works that people were doing, what you often hear and what I hear on television all the time is when people are videotaped, when someone does a good deed, they might say something like this, you know, I lost faith in man. But this has shown me that I can actually have my faith restored in humanity. And what do you say to that? What do I say to that? That's right. Survey said, <laughs> wrong answer. Because as soon as the good was done, the bad will come. And guess what? Even those who do the good on the inside, it's not so good. You can crank it out on the outside and have a bad heart on the inside. That's why Jesus said that if you even think about adultery, you've committed it already because you've thought about it in your heart. And then there are those who are bad on the outside and they're bad on the inside. So what does the law do? I'll tell you exactly what the law does. This is so vivid to me in counseling sessions that I have with folks. And of course, I'm not as exercised as I am right now. But when I sit one-on-one -on -one with people and I talk to them, I say, look, here's what the law does. It's like you're, you're walking down the sidewalk of a pretty neighborhood. And you're walking along and you see to the right of the sidewalk this beautiful, luscious blade, uh, multi-blades of grass. You, you just believe that this particular lawn of this particular person who has this house next to the sidewalk has done a beautiful job with the grass. I mean, no raking of leaves necessary here. And this, this blade of grass, this, this lawn, the, it is so immaculate, you could think it was a green at Augusta. And you guessed it, 
what would be a sign that would be placed on that grass? Keep off. Keep off the grass. And in your heart, even if you never physically carried it out, what's in your heart? You just want to go over there and stomp on it. Why? Because there's a sign there that says don't do it. Right? And that's what's happening in our hearts when we say, look, God, I know what you said. I know what the law is. I know it says no trespassing, but because it says what it says, I'm going to do it. That's our hearts. That's the way it is. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, the very thing that the rich young ruler should have said. He says, verse 7 of Romans 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? He's answering basically the same question of Galatians 3. Is the law bad then? If it does all these bad things, if it gives me surface to all of these sinful issues in my heart, it must not be a good thing. He says, may it never be. That's not true. On the contrary, notice what he says. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Oh, that's good. If the law hadn't come in and it hadn't imprisoned us, we wouldn't know our sinfulness. He goes on. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Do you see? There was a sign on the grass that said, keep off. And I wouldn't have even known about my desire to stomp all over the grass if there hadn't been a sign. And there's a sign. Sign says, do not steal. What do I want to do? I want to steal. Sign that says, don't covet. What do I want? I want what somebody else has. And what happens is the law is a tutor that drives me to Christ. The law stirs up my sinfulness. And when it does, it's one of two choices. Number one, in humble submission, I say to Jesus Christ, and boy, what would you have said if you were asking Jesus himself that very question? And if he were to say to you, recognize the pride of your heart, that's in essence what he did. Recognize the pride that's there because if you said you've kept all these things from your youth up, we have bigger problems than you ever thought. And do I in humble submission say, yes, Lord, yes. Yes, the indictment about my heart is true. It's true, yes. I have good news. Jesus Christ suffered took stripes. He had nails pierced in his hands. He had a big spear put in his side. He suffered and bled and died. And not only did he do that, but while he was living on this earth, he walked and talked and obeyed perfectly. That's Jesus Christ in his life and in his death. And if you and I ever hope to achieve eternal life, it's by saying, he did it, I cannot. He lived the life and died the death that I could not live nor die. And so I give my life such as it is in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, 
It is our opportunity to be slayed by the law. And we concur with Paul, may it never be that we look askance at the law as though it's some wicked thing, as though it's some bad thing. No, we concur with Paul that the law is holy and righteous and good because it shows me how far short I fall. Oh, but Lord, thank you. Thank you that you've given me the opportunity to bow my knee to Jesus Christ. That he bled. That he died. That he lived a perfect, righteous life. Lord, I need Christ. Give him to me now. I humbly and desperately ask it. Bring me to a place where my imprisoned soul is set free. Thank you for the law. And thank you for the gospel. Bring me to yourself even now. Amen.